Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We are on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we have the privilege to talk with Dr. Joel Beakey about a book that he has written called Reformed Preaching. Uh, Many of us at CBTS are interested about this subject, so we've invited uh, administrators Roberto Soriano and Rex Simrod to join us for this conversation. We also have uh, uh, Jimmy Johnson and Dewey Doval is normal to talk with uh, Dr. Beakey, but uh, before we get into our show's conversation, Dr. Beakey, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Great to be with you, Austin. Yeah, and since you are a uh, first-time interviewee to our show, we like to normally start uh, by inviting our interviewee to tell our audience a little bit about themselves. So can you do that for our show? Sure, sure. I was um, born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and was converted there as a teenager. Um, God brought me up in a home that was very... Godly, very reformed, maybe a little bit hyper-Calvinistic in some ways. And um, I felt powerfully called to ministry when I was 16. And then I went to a school in St. Catharines for four years and then ministered to 700 farmers in Sioux Center, Iowa. And from there, I went to... 700 white-collar people outside of New York City, doctors and lawyers, uh, church in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. And while there, I got my PhD in the Reformation, post-Reformation studies at Westminster in Philadelphia. And from there, I came to Grand Rapids, where I've been for the last 36 years, pastoring uh, what's now called the Heritage Reformed Church here. And also, um, 29 years ago, I started the Puritan Reform Seminary and Reformation Heritage Books. And they, they both, of course, consume a good part of, well, most of my life, actually. But um, I'm 25% pastor still in my in my church. Um, but I'm a workaholic, so I'm probably, probably it's like a half-time pastor. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in my office here preparing for lectures and writing books and that type of thing, as well as trying to run the seminary. Seminary is 265 students at the moment, and half of those are from 22 countries around the world, 32 denominations around the world, uh, and half are from North America. I have a wonderful wife named Mary. She's just fantastic. I love her dearly. And three children, they're all godly and with all godly spouses. So I'm I'm really a blessed man. And um, six years ago, I had zero grandchildren and today I have nine. So the grandchildren are coming in like a flood, which is wonderful. And by the way, everything that anybody tells you about grandchildren, as great as it is, it's even better than what they say. Well, praise the Lord for what he has done in your life. And, uh, Thank you so much for once again taking the time to join us. You mentioned that one of your responsibilities is uh, taking the time to write books. And so we do want to take some time to talk about 
uh, one of the books that you have written called Reformed Preaching. Um, we're thankful to talk about one subject in particular that you emphasize in this book called what you call experiential or experimental preaching. And uh, perhaps this concept may be new to some of our listeners. So to begin our conversation on your book, uh, can you take some time to explain what experiential or experimental preaching is? Sure. So as reformed in our theology, we we commonly say, don't we, that all preaching must be biblical. That's a given. All preaching must be reformed in its theology based on the scriptures. All preaching must be confessional, whether it's 1689 confession from the Baptist perspective or the three forms of unity or the three Westminster standards from um, other perspectives. And then we say preaching must be practical. But what we've forgotten in many circles today is that preaching must also be experiential. And that was commonly understood from the time of Kelvin all the way to the 1830s when Charles Finney brought in his... Um, methods of easy believism and uh, these things began to fade away in 1857 there was a reformed baptist preacher named francis wayland who um, already was complaining that experiential preaching was on the wane and um, before i read his quote to you i want i want to read his quote because it's it's the best summary i know but let me just give you one quick illustration uh, from my own life that I think might be helpful. So if you don't remember anything else that I say uh, here in answer to this question, the basic, the short answer to your question is experiential preaching is expounding how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in the soul. The work of salvation so it's applicatory preaching it applies the word to the believer's experience and it's discriminatory preaching it distinguishes the believer from the non-believer uh, because millions of people of course as you well know say well i believe the bible i believe jesus is god i'm a christian but their lives don't show the fruits so experiential preaching is a way of having the preacher tell the people what really happens in the soul and in the life of the person who's been born again. Now, how does a preacher do that? Well, here's my illustration. When I left, I, I, was, in the, uh, I was in the lottery system, last year the lottery system in America, and so I had to go into the Army. I signed up for the Army Reserves. After six months of active duty, the boss I had said to me, well, um, it's been nice knowing you. And if you get called back up into war, if you get activated in the next five and a half years, um, remember three things. Remember how war should go. You've been trained to fight. Secondly, remember that wars never go the way they should go. They're bloody, they're messy, they take surprising twists and turns. And thirdly, remember who you're fighting for, what's, what the goal is. Remember your end goal. You're fighting for Uncle Sam, you're fighting for the United States of America. Later on, I thought, you know, that's a pretty good parallel with experiential preaching. The preacher, you see, needs to preach 
what the believer should be experiencing, how he should be living by the Spirit, the optimism of Romans 8, for example. We're more than conquerors. We, 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 we mind the things of the Spirit. This is the way it should go, our Christian life. And secondly, the preacher must also expound the battle, the internal holy warfare that goes on in the life of the believer, the struggles of Romans 7, the the good that I would, I find myself not doing, the evil that I would not do, I find myself doing, a wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And thirdly, preacher must also preach the end goal, Revelation 21, 22, being with Christ forever, victorious in heaven, the, 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 the bride of the bridegroom in utopian marriage, sin-free in Emmanuel's land, and so on. So, Use that in your mind as an example, and then compare that to many preachers preaching today, where you just hear, yes, wonderful doctrines laid out, but not applied to the soul, and not examining the soul, where the Holy Spirit and his work is kind of pushed to the background. Uh, that's what our forefathers were warning against when they warned about the waning of experiential preaching. So Calvin already used both the word experimental and experiential. By the way, they basically mean the same thing, that our experiences get tested by the scripture to see if they're true. And Calvin and the Puritans were all basically one on that. And uh, But in the 19th century, uh, around 1830, 1840 or so, that began to wane. So here, here's the quotation from Francis Whalen, and this will be more descriptive, and I think you'll get a feel of it. He writes, he's complaining about preaching in 1857. From the manner in which our ministers entered upon their work, it is evident that it must have been the prominent object of their lives to convert men to God. They were remarkable for what has been called experimental preaching. It told much of the exercises of the human soul, the exercises of the human soul under the influence of the truth of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. And here they are. And this is all one sentence. And I'll, I'll just give it to you like, like bullet points. The feeling of a sinner while under the convicting power of the truth. The various subterfuges to which he resorted when aware of his danger the successive applications of truth by which he was driven out of all of them, the despair of the soul when it found itself wholly without a refuge, the soul's final submission to God and simple reliance on Christ, the joys of the new birth and the earnestness of the soul to introduce others to the happiness with which it has now for the first time experienced, the trials of the soul when it found itself an object of reproach and persecution among those whom it loved best, the process of sanctification, the devices of Satan to lead us into sin, the mode in which the attacks of the adversary may be resisted, the danger of backsliding with its evidences and the means of recovery from it. And then Francis Whalen concludes with these sad words. These remarks, this sentence I just read to you, show the tendency of the class of preachers which seems now to be passing away. And if that's true in 1857, how much more that's true today. So what I'm trying to do with my whole way of life, with my preaching, my own preaching, with seminary, with 
with uh, book ministry, I'm trying to resurrect by the grace of God through the influence of the Spirit, this need for the full, robust Trinitarian preaching, which includes preaching about the work of the Spirit, not to be introspective and navel-gazing, as some people cause the, call the Puritans, navel-gazers, but rather to trace the work of the Holy Spirit, as G.I. Packer said the Puritans did, in order to give all the glory to God and to understand how the Spirit works in the soul so we can discriminate in our own soul where we are at spiritually. So, yes, this whole book is really just about one aspect of preaching, Reformed experiential preaching. Thank you for that, brother. And uh, I'll ask uh, Roberto now at this time to uh, ask his question for you related to experiential, experiential preaching. I think uh, in your book, you use uh, John Bunyan as an example. So uh, go ahead, Roberto. Thank you, Austin. And uh, thank you, Dr. Beakey, for that definition. As you were speaking, I, I, I thought this uh, definition of experimental preaching describes uh, what you write in your book, uh, John Bunyan uh, practiced. And so my question is about uh, his preaching. Most of us are uh, acquainted with Bunyan, the author, his influence on the Protestant world and specifically on the English-speaking world can hardly be over overstated. Um, but few of us are well acquainted with him as a preacher. And you talk about him in your book, um, can you can you tell us more about John Bunyan, the preacher? What were some of the distinguishing marks of his pulpit ministry? And can you also tell us more about how experimental theology uh, made up for his lack of education and, and uh, academic degrees, as you uh, point out in your chapter? Yeah, yeah. A very good question. Thank you, Roberto. Um, I, I would love to answer that. God helping me here. Uh, first, first of all, let me say that John Owen said, and this is a famous quote by Owen that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it here. But he said, I would gladly give up all my learning if I had John Bunyan, the tinker's ability to reach the common man in the pew. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, reach him in all areas, not just in his mind, but also in his soul and in his life experience. Um, at the same time, we need to be careful with that statement because everyone just pictures John Bunyan as being a rather uneducated man, and I, I disagree with that. Uh, Bunyan spent a lot of years in prison, and even though he only had a handful of books, he he really he really was a self-taught theologian, and he had a good mind, very good mind, and um, he read carefully. He prayed earnestly. He he really was a self-taught. He, he he brought himself through a kind of a seminary that you know you you know that ninety-nine percent of the Puritans went through Oxford or Cambridge, and they're very very educated men. So yes, Bunyan maybe didn't get that kind of education, or he didn't, but at the same time, he was better read 
than most people realize. And he did a lot of study on his own. And um, so he really should not be thought of as just some uneducated tinker. Um, he actually, through study, educated himself far more than some of the other Puritans did who went through Oxford and Cambridge and then didn't persevere in study. So that's one of my pet peeves in the seminary too. I say to, I say to my students when they graduate, now you have just begun to learn how to study. And I also say to them when they first come in, however much theology you think you know, I hope four years from now when you graduate that you realize you know less than you think you know now. In other words, seminary is just the beginning. And I think Bunyan didn't have that, but he had this self-taught discipline and this passion and zeal for the love of God that made him really study earnestly the word of God. Well, how did he preach? Well, I tried in my book to, to basically say, experientially, Bunyan had three wonderful gifts. One was what I call participatory preaching. That is to say, he had a way of drawing you into the sermon that you felt you were a participant in the sermon. So he has a book on the barren fig tree. And um, he, you can actually, he actually talks about the blows on the fig tree's trunk. You know, we're going to take this fig tree down. And, 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 and by the time he's done, you feel like you're the fig tree. And you've got just this amazing, amazing opportunity that just in the nick of time, you are spared for one more year to seek the Lord. You've got one more opportunity before you die. Uh, and you need this Savior desperately. You cannot go on another week without him. You know, that's what Bunyan makes you feel like. And in that participatory preaching, he's very strong on the enormity of sin. He's very strong on the necessity of repentance and faith in Christ. He's very strong on preaching the fullness of the offer of Christ. But he makes you... He makes you feel like you're the only person in the audience as he preaches. Like it's just, and that he himself falls away. It's just God speaking to you directly. And he does that by drawing you in, by personalizing the sermon. So, for example, in one sermon that comes to mind where he says, Come and welcome to Jesus Christ is the title of the book. And it says, uh, all that the Father has given to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. He talks about God's sovereignty, man's responsibility there, shows how they're not really the intention in the Bible. They work together. And then he um this he he addresses all the all the objections that a sinner raises um towards coming to against coming to Christ. And he, he lists them one by one. And you feel like you're that sinner. And he actually calls you, he's very good at giving names, not in the Trumpian sense of the word, but in a, in a positive sense of the word. So he says, he calls, he calls you, Mr. Shall come. Um, he, they shall come to me. And Mr. Shall come, here's your objection. Yes, but here's the answer. He will draw you. He will, he will pull you in. He will, he will work with the spirit in you. He will save even Jerusalem sinners, the greatest of sinners. Are, are, are you greater than a Jerusalem sinner? You too can be saved. Repent, every one of you. You know, so he, 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 he makes you, 
He makes you pull, he pulls you into the sermon. And that is particularly, I think, what Owen has in mind that Owen's just felt, you know, I just don't have that gift the way Bunyan does. So in that sense, Bunyan was a very common man and he made you feel like he was on your level and just talking to you earnestly and drawing you in. Secondly, pleading preaching, pleading preaching. Bunyan was a man who knew the reality of preaching in terms of 2 Corinthians 5. We beseech you, be reconciled to, to God. And um, he, he, he knows how to plead with sinners, how to show them their emptiness, their, their need. Uh, the Isaiah 55 chapter is vintage uh, chapter for, for Bunyan to preach. You know, ho everyone that cometh to the waters, come you without money and without price. And why do you waste your money on that which is not bread? And uh, seek the Lord while he's may, may be found and call upon him while he's yet near and, and, and so on. So Bunyan pleads with the sinner so strongly that you feel under his preaching that if you are not saved, you're an immediate danger of eternal hellfire. And if you are saved, you see, everything you have is in and through Christ, which is the third aspect of his preaching that's very experiential. I call it Christ-exalting preaching. He knows how to preach Christ as prophet, as priest, as king, in his natures, in his states, in his person, uh, in his promises, in his work. Uh, he's just a great master lifting up Jesus Christ, exalting him, and explaining to the people in graphic terms, this Savior can meet your every need, spiritually, naturally, whether you're saved, whether you're unsaved. He's the answer. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's what you need. And so this Christ exaltation by the Spirit's indwelling and gracious ministry in the soul taking the things of Christ and revealing them to us, Bunyan excelled at. And, uh, and, then, and then showing you what a wonderful thing it is to be saved. Uh, he just has uh, um, a way about him. Like I'm just quoting him right here. Uh, oh, sinner, what do you say now, having heard this sermon? How do you like being saved? Does not your mouth just water? Does not your heart twitter? at being saved. Why? Come then, come then to Jesus Christ. The spirit and the bride say, come, let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Amen. You see, he's, he's powerful by participatory preaching, by pleading preaching, by Christ's exalting preaching. And all of those are done in the context of the spirit's work in the soul. They're all done as part and parcel of what I'm calling experiential preaching. It's very helpful for us uh, to consider not only um, your definition and explanation of experiential preaching that you've given us thus far, but now we've uh, been able to talk about John Bunyan as, as someone who exemplifies this well. Uh, Rex, go ahead and ask your question now. Yeah, Dr. Beakey, the Puritans are famous, some would say infamous, in their, for um, arranging their sermons like Pauline epistles. 
and having the doctrine up front and then at the end of the sermon having you know many many applications or uses as they called them whereas uh, a lot of reformed preachers today um, say it's better to sprinkle your application throughout the message um, I mean obviously practical has to come after the doctrine has to come first but what what would you say is the best approach to use in preaching today yeah that's a great question i thought about it a lot rex uh and i talked to my students quite a bit about it in fact i gave two addresses a few years back to the banner truth conference in in pennsylvania one was titled um what the puritans have to teach us about preaching today and the other was how we should not preach like the Puritans today, uh, because we do live in a different time. And because I've been reading the Puritans for 55 years and promoting them so much, and because Reformation Heritage Books is now for years already, and for the foreseeable future, printing one Puritan book on an average per month, um, so people know I really love the Puritans and really promoting them. Uh, everybody wanted to hear my second talk <laughs> how we're not to preach like the Puritans today. Um, but I believe this is one way we're not to preach like the Puritans today. And I, I want to explain myself. Uh, in the Puritan day, the method of education was a Romistic method where you basically took a truth and you divided it in two categories, two subpoints, and then you divided those subpoints into two subpoints and sub sub points and then you had sub sub points and sub 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 points and maybe sub 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 points now that means it was very very easy for people in that day having been educated that way to remember down to four or five levels of sub points today we're educated in a very different way today the common man is so saturated with uh, tv and, and and modern media that the mind can scarcely remember what the preacher said seven minutes ago. When I first became a theological teacher, I actually said to my students, don't ever, ever preach for more than 15 minutes any doctrine without making some applications. Puritans wouldn't have said that. Um, they could preach their three points, let's say it's a three-point sermon, and then go back and apply all three points um, 45 minutes into the sermon and apply them for maybe 20, 25 minutes to have a 70-minute sermon. And people would remember the doctrinal points. But today, with the mind being switched every half a second, half a second, half a second. See, I grew up without TV. And uh, I still have a problem today when I see something like a video. I go, why is it going so fast? Why is it going so fast? Uh, you know, this doesn't give you time to think about it. But that's the way people are educated today. And so the mind is trained to speed up, but it also becomes much more forgetful because it hasn't, it can't sink in. And so now I'm saying to students, don't ever preach for more than seven minutes without having applications. People just cannot handle it. So you have to be realistic. You have to deal with the mind of the people to whom you preach. And what I have found in preaching and having preached for 46 years is that 
the best method of preaching, as Charles Bridges said already in the 19th century, is you, for every doctrinal point you make, you ask yourself the question, so what? And instead of putting that so what application at the end of the sermon, you put it right there. So that as soon as people hear it, they immediately hear why this is important. Now, actually, sometimes the Puritans did do that. And then they collected a whole bunch of uses at the end. But you're right. The common way was to put almost all the applications at the end. So what I teach students now is make a doctrinal point, yes, and then apply it. Doctrine, apply, doctrine, apply, doctrine, apply. And then at the very end of your sermon, look back and say, what are the two or three major takeaways from this sermon? What must your hearer do with this sermon? And summarize those two or three points without, without repeating yourself very much, but kind of something that's fresh and yet something that draws out what you've been developing. So you, you hit that nail home at the end with two or three powerful applications, and they go out saying, I'm resolved to change this in my life, or I'm resolved to do that. Or wasn't this a glorious truth for me to meditate on or something? But in other words, doctrine, application, doctrine, application, doctrine, application, doctrine, application, and then applications right at the end. So borrow a bit of the idea of the Puritans, but don't follow them completely in this point. Hmm. Very helpful. Um, Rex, did you want to follow up at all? I saw you unmuted your mic. No, I just that, just thank you very much. That was extremely helpful. Okay, then uh, Dewey, go ahead and uh, ask your question now at this time. Dr. Vicky, it's been so great to hear all of your insights that you've already shared today. This is all very important and thought-provoking stuff, and we're so grateful to have you on today's show. For my question, I wanted to hear your thoughts on expository preaching in both the Reformed and Puritan traditions. Um, I know that uh, probably echoing the sentiment of some of these men who've been in Bible college and seminary for quite some time. We, we repeatedly hear the importance of expository preaching. We see that it's rooted in scripture. We also hear that it's uh, a prevailing method of preaching and, and the Reformed and Puritan traditions. We had your good friend Steve Lawson on our show a few months back who also echoed these sentiments, but I really wanted to hear your perspective today on expository preaching in um, the Reformed and Puritan tradition specifically. Um, it would be, uh, be awesome to hear your comments on that note. And then also, maybe if you would, uh, give your thoughts on the current climate today of expository preaching, particularly in the Reformed world. I think our listeners would be very blessed to hear your thoughts on, on both of those matters. Okay, yeah, thank you for that question, Dewey. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. And and being being the homiletics professor here, I do at Puritan Reformed, I do I do deal with these things. I'll try to I'll try to condense it down in, in five minutes here, but it's that's a big question. Um, first of all, there is a bit of a difference between the reformers and the Puritans in this area in terms of their preaching. So Calvin and um, Zwingli, for example would would just kind of homiletically walk through a text in an expository fashion without even giving the sermon a title or three major points or be a self-contained unit. You, know, you often hear Kelvin say, okay, now our, our time is about up now, so uh, we'll, we'll pick up here next week. 
and he's moved through five verses and you know it's it just it's kind of the homiletic style of the um, ancient fathers so it is expository preaching just going through the books and and um, it worked well for Zwingli and Kelvin and there was a freshness and innovative thoughts in their sermons that really connected with people so it, it worked well the Puritans came along in what they tended to do which I don't recommend we necessarily do today. In fact, I, I'd say probably probably better not to do it this way. But they usually took three or four pages, so to speak, because all, all their books basically are, are their sermons written out. Three or four pages, you notice they expound the text in expository fashion. And they often move through Bible books that way. But then they gather from the text, from the pericope, maybe... Maybe it's six verses. Maybe it's just two verses. Maybe it's one. Maybe it's half a verse. And they look at that and they say, what is the major doctrine? What's the major doctrine we can extract from this one verse? They then set that doctrine in the middle of the page. That becomes like the, uh, the tour de force of their sermon. It becomes like the center part of their sermon. And then they really expound that doctrine for the rest of the sermon and then apply it with all of its uses. So is that expository preaching or is it not? <laughs> in, in the modern sense of expository preaching, it, it's still different than that. Now, today, today, there are people, and I, I love Steve Lawson, don't get me wrong here at whatsoever. Steve and I are very close friends, and I love to hear him preach about expository preaching. But there are people who would take what Steve is saying and say, this is the only way to preach. You can't preach any other way. You've got to preach directly through a whole Bible book or, or a whole chapter at a time. And you should never just pick an isolated text, speak about the context and preach that as a one-off sermon. Or you certainly should never go and preach some of the feast days of Advent and Christmas and Passion and Easter and, and Pentecost. Um, I do disagree with that. I believe that there are more than one, there's more than one legitimate way of preaching. If expository preaching means you always have to go through Bible books, I, I think that's limiting, limiting preaching of the ages past. Now, for me, expository preaching means you just expound the word of God. And uh, I, I, I agree with that, but that can also be taken up in a topical way. So I like diversity in the congregation, and I think that's true to church history. So I would say there's four kinds of preaching. There's the expository kind of preaching where you work your way through the Bible book. That's my favorite kind of preaching, and I, I do it every chance I can get. Uh, on my own pulpit. I'm working through the book of Mark right now and, and love it. Um, but then there's all, also the one-off kind of preaching um, where you where you have maybe a special service. Yesterday was the International Day of Persecution for uh, the, sun, the Sunday for it, for, for preaching about the persecuted churches. Well, I just happened to be in Mark and I was able to combine the two. And But I preached for 20 minutes in my sermon about persecution under the theme of that my text was take up your cross or deny yourself take up your cross and follow me and under the cross section of the sermon i was able to 
bring in some material about uh, persecuted Christians around the world and our own persecutions today. So it worked out well. I was able to combine those two. But it's not uncommon for me to say, okay, we're going to take a break from our Mark sermons for, for one Sunday and let me take a solo text that really addresses the whole issue of persecuted Christians today. It'd be perfectly legitimate. Um, Spurgeon, of course, did nothing but one-off sermons, basically. He never preached through a, a Bible book, and we seem to we seem to love his preaching. Uh, I think he went to the other extreme. Why not do a little bit of all and maybe a primary note on expository preaching through Bible books, but uh, also topical preaching? We do that, of course, in our tradition through preaching from the Heidelberg Catechism. We still preach a text, but we also topically deal with the whole of what Scripture says. In topical preaching, you're not just looking at the pericope and the surrounding context of one chapter. You're really taking into scope what the whole of the Bible has to say about it. And that's the kind of preaching, actually, the Puritans did a lot of. That's how they could get um, 144 sermons out of John 17. Uh, or 145 sermons, Anthony Burgess, on John 17. Well, he'd get into one of those verses, and he would look at what the whole of Scripture had to say about the intercession of Christ. So he'd go on about the intercession of Christ for seven or eight sermons. I don't recommend that today either, but I do recommend kind of a topical preaching that brings you to all the major doctrines of the Bible so that the member in the pew will hear over a period of time, say over a period of a couple of years, will hear every major doctrine of the Bible expounded. That's very important. And I also think, fourthly, providing it doesn't dominate the church calendar too much, preaching on some of the great historic redemptive acts of Christ from Advent to Pentecost uh, can be helpful for a church. because. We don't just have to preach experientially. We also have the subjective reality of the Christian faith. We also have to preach the objective reality of the Christian faith in the cross, in Christ. And by focusing a few Sundays on Advent and then on Christ's birth and so on, what we're doing by walking through the ministry of Christ is we are bringing to our people once a year the great historic redemptive acts of their salvation which when preached objectively with power and sweetness can also become subjective reality under the preaching and we become more lovers of Christ. So in my mind, bringing all four of these kinds of preaching together, walking through Bible books, individual texts, um, special days of redemptive his, historical preaching and what Christ has done and topical preaching, based on a catechism that was designed for preaching that really echoes what the church has been saying throughout all ages of a proper interpretation of the bible and each particular doctrine those four kinds of preaching i think serve in a very balanced way to mature a congregation in the whole of scripture now i realize there's a lot of people that disagree with me and i have a lot of close reformed baptist friends all around the world who would disagree with me on a couple of those items. But I deeply respect their convictions. 
and we can live together in, in, in one house. But you asked me my opinion, and so um, I, I gave you my opinion. Yeah, thank you for that as well. And now, Jimmy, go ahead. Dr. Beakey, um, thank you so much again for, for coming on the podcast and sharing so many great insights on, on preaching and giving us your opinion on that last question. That was very helpful to me personally. But with that being said, do you have any final thoughts or encouragements related to Puritanism, or Puritanism preaching, or your book? Yeah, if I had my way, brother, I would... Uh... I would, I would strive to get every Christian to, to read the Puritans, to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow in their spiritual depth. Um, I just got a letter, actually, if I can find that. Yeah, it's right here on my desk from Johnny Erickson Tata last week with a book she sent me. And she says um, that she's been so greatly influenced by the Puritans ever since she was paralyzed from the neck down. And um, she said it's because she she found in the Puritans the kind of spiritual depth she needed to cope with her profound suffering. And um, she says this, um, when, when suffering, oh, she says that originally before she, she broke her neck, she tried reading the Puritans, but thought they were just a little bit too deep and too difficult. So she kind of pushed them aside. But afterwards, she said her, her, her afflictions, um, like Psalm 42 says, deep calls to deep. She needed something deeper to cope with her afflictions. So she returned to the Puritans. And listen to this. I'm so very glad I did. From Jeremiah Burroughs, I learned to subtract my desires to fit a life of paralysis. Samuel Rutherford told me not even to think about sneaking quietly into heaven without a cross. Jonathan Edwards helped me explore that awe-filled trench, that vast bottomless ocean of God. And Thomas Brooks said that next to Christ, I should set the choice of saints before me as a pattern for living. I did just that with the likes of these valiant, far-seen men we call Puritans. When hard suffering is your daily experience, you gravitate toward people who are deeply serious about God, life, and faith. Your spirit resonates with them. You recognize and trust their counsel, and you easily fall into the irresistible orb of their love for Jesus Christ. The Puritans have had that inexorable pull for me, and it's the Puritans who beckon us beyond the shallows and into the glorious depths of God, where the inability to touch bottom never ignites fear, but rather generates sheer delight. And doesn't every Christian really want this? Doesn't every believer want to go deep, even if it's costly? Don't we all long for and look forward to heaven? I sure do. And it's not just because the setting aside of this tent, as the Apostle Peter puts it, or because I yearn to wrestle free of this confounding thing called affliction. It's more than these things. The Puritan exposition of the Bible shows how my joyous, daily carrying of a cross holds a mysterious connection to a far greater joy and inexplicable, unspeakable joy and worship and service of God in heaven. So that's a good summary of what the Puritans have done for me all my life and through all my trials. I, I, I love their writing. And what we're doing today 
is we're trying to make them, um, we're, 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 we're publishing a whole new series of books called Puritan Treasures for Heaven, uh, in which every sentence is edited to read like it was written yesterday, so that the Purit we're making the Puritans actually easy to read without sacrificing content. We've got 14 of these little books out now. We're going to do dozens more. Uh, we're also, we've also got a printing schedule of, for the next seven years, of 84 Puritan titles and uh, plus one major Puritan set every year. Uh, we're on the cusp of also, I mean, a little bit post-Puritan and uh, and uh, Scottish, but we're, we're on the cusp of doing uh, Thomas Boston's complete works in the next uh, couple months, uh, that type of thing. Uh, we just did the complete works of William Perkins. It was completed a couple years ago. Uh, Ten volumes, never been reprinted since the 1600s. And I've had thousands and thousands of people tell me over the years that reading these rich, spiritually rich Puritans have, has transformed their spiritual life. So I hope to keep doing this until I die. And I would encourage your listener to, uh, to, to start with the Puritan treasures for today from, uh, from Reformation Heritage Books, which is now by far the world's largest publisher of Puritan titles, uh, right, right to, uh, or, or Google rather, uh, heritagebooks.org and go to the Reformation Heritage Books list and uh, start reading some of the Puritans. Uh, by the way, I just co-published with uh, Michael Reeves a, a little book called The Following God Fully, an introduction to the Puritans, just 150-page simple intro. You can get that from heritagebooks.org at all. Probably get that, get a start for it, then move up to Meet the Puritans and a Puritan Theology and uh, J.I. Packer's quest, quest for uh, Godliness on the Puritans. Those are your secondary sources, but also start reading the Puritans themselves by starting with Puritan Treasures for today. And once you read them, you're going to realize immediately these are so substantive. I want to read the actual original Puritans. That's what you're going to say to yourself. And so then you move to Thomas Watson. We recommend Heaven Taken by Storm is a great intro into the segue of, his, of the original Puritan writings. And then move to John Flavel. And then to John Bunyan, and work your way up, all the way up to Thomas Goodwin and John Owen. And by the time you get there, you, you've caught the bug, and you will never not be reading a Puritan book again because they're so rich and spiritual and so godly, help you so much in your Christian walk. Dr. Beakey, these are some incredible works that you are in the midst of producing and we thank you so much again for your continued scholarship and your godly example i know uh, all the men on this panel have the highest level of respect for you so thank you again for coming on to today's show thank you thank you for having me god bless you all yes sir and to our listeners we want to thank you for your continued support of our show if you've not done so already please be sure to pick up a copy of dr beaky's work reform preaching proclaiming God's word from the heart of the preacher to the heart of his people. You certainly won't be disappointed in doing so. And as Dr. Beakey just shared, be on the lookout for some of these exciting projects that are in the works in the months and years to come. So until next time, we wish you grace and peace from the Covenant Podcast. God bless.